Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Jesus changes everything. Man, it's been a great series. I I love my pastor. I love as he's been teaching through this process. And it's a privilege for me to close out the series. Uh, It was a privilege for me to open the series. So I'm kind of like this bookend thing. And as I was reading through Colossians again, it really is kind of a perfect fit because I think Paul does similar type of, of thing in his letter. He sort of bookends. He's praising them at the front end, but at the same time, then he's kind of closing out with a summary. So we're going to finish up this morning. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to let you know that uh, next weekend, we kick off a brand new series. And uh, it's going to be a privilege. This summer, we've got a number of guests that are coming in. You're going to hear from some of our guys in-house. You're also going to hear from a number of very special guests that are going to come and join us. So be with us every week. Um, Invite some friends. It's going to be a great time. But next weekend, I know it's Memorial Day weekend, uh, but Dr. Sean McDowell is going to be with us next Sunday in the house for those three Sean McDowell fans in the house. Sean, we love you. Uh, We are excited to have you with us. Um, Memorial Day weekend wasn't my first choice when when we reached out. Pastor Scott said, man, I'd love to have Sean back. Uh, Sean was going to be with us last year, but we had this little COVID thing going on. And so he actually did a virtual message for us. You can jump online and catch that from last July. Um, But when we reached out again, he is actually in East Tennessee this week for an apologetics conference. And so he's just going to jump over here next weekend, spend some time with us. I know that you will love him. Uh, Such a great uh, Bible teacher, wise beyond his young years. And uh, but, but as a special note too, if you are a high school student, if you have a high school student, know of a high school student, He's actually going to come spend some time with our high school students on Saturday night. Um, It's just kind of an intimate time. He's got a brand new book out called Chasing Love. Um, And Pastor Danny said, man, I would love for him to spend some time with our high school students if that would work. It worked out great. So they're going to be on campus together. So if you have a high school student, lock in on that information. I know our student ministry has gotten some information out there, but it's going to be a great time. Then Sean's going to be with us in the room for two services next week to kick off our Timeless Truth series. And so it's going to be a fantastic time. So plan on being here for that. Uh, As we close this series, I do find it a little interesting that as Paul began, he sort of summarizes his closing. Uh, In chapter 1, he was praising the the church in Colossae for, uh, he he says in chapter 1 that they understood the grace of God in truth, that their lives were being transformed, that the Spirit was working in the lives of the Colossians. It was evidenced, we looked at it several weeks ago, uh, by the fact that they were bearing fruit, and that fruit was increasing. It was transforming their lives. It was producing a, a kind of love that only God can produce in the life of people. And so he was praising them for those things. And it's sort of like the sandwich approach, right? Positive, negative, positive. Uh, If you've been in management stuff at all, it's kind of a a great technique, right? Positive, negative, positive. And so he kind of starts out well, and then he kind of hits them with some hard truth in the middle. And then he closes out with just loving, affirming um, comments as he sort of summarizes the teaching. And so he's finishing out, I I think, from chapter 3, mid-3, through the rest of his letter. And again, remember, Paul didn't write the chapters. He just wrote the letter. So if you really want to get a feel for Paul's letter, just read it from first word to last word altogether and see how it flows. 
but he, he's encouraging them with sort of a summary, if you would, uh, of what's been going on in life and how God is transforming lives and what does that look like in the life of these believers. He knows that living the Christian life is tough. Anybody? Come on, man. Living the Christian life is tough. It is. It's tough, but God's with us in the journey. There's no easy promises when we give our life to Christ, and so he, he wants to motivate them and us as we look at his letter um, to press on. Just look at your neighbor and say, man, let's just press on together. Yeah, it's okay. We're, we're going to press on together. That's what we do in the body of Christ. And so, I don't know about you, but when you came to know Jesus or when you've seen someone that, that gives their life to Christ, it's an exciting time, isn't it? Stuff starts to happen, and maybe you remember the moment that you gave your life to Christ, and, you know, it was just an exciting time. You felt forgiveness. You felt the presence of God. You began to see changes in your life. God began dealing with your wanter, right? The things you want, the things that you desire, because He was beginning to do a work in your life, and, and, and yet… When we come to know Christ, we're not simply then living to pass from this life and spending eternity with God in heaven. There's this space between coming to know Christ and spending eternity in heaven that is this space in between. And this, this is where stuff gets a little hard. It gets a little difficult. We're living in that moment right now. If you've come to know Jesus Christ personally, if you're in the room or you're watching online, if you've come to that place of trusting Jesus Christ, you were saved. And one day you will be saved for all eternity, but right now you're living in between. And, and this is the kind of stuff that Paul is writing about here. Uh, this space in between is, is where life gets a little bit difficult. It gets a little bit tough. And this is the space where God invites us to a deeper level of intimacy, a deeper level of personal relationship, growth, Understanding and embracing the purpose that He's called us to live for the kingdom. And it's in this space that we have to daily, moment by moment, evaluate where we are in our spiritual growth process. We have to assess our growth. We have to evaluate where we are. We have to invite people into our life that, that are going to love us and encourage us to continue to grow in the journey of progression towards spiritual maturity. So let me just create a picture for a moment. I've got some graphics I want to show you because uh, th this really hit me, and I think Paul's dealing with this here, that there's three aspects when the Bible breaks down salvation. We talk about being saved, but there's, there's three aspects of that. I remember a point in my life that I was saved. It was a moment past, right? I was saved. For me, it was, I grew up in Northern Illinois, which probably explains a lot of things to many of you. Um, but I remember as a little boy um, asking my dad, I said, I want to know this Jesus. And, and he took me out of the little church that I grew up in. Now, you got to understand, he's taken me out of services before. There was no such thing as children's church. Children's church was sitting next to dad getting smacked when I stepped out of line, right? That was children's church. And I learned the love and the wrath of God pretty quick. So, when, when I had that moment as a child and I said, man, Dad, I want to know this Jesus. I want to know what it means to have a relationship with God. He, he took me out of the service and he took me downstairs of this little church to the boiler room. Now, you got to understand, I've been to that boiler room before for very different reasons. 
I, I still have people in my life to this day that say, man, I'll never forget your dad taking you and your brother out of church. You came back the sweetest little boys. <laughs> and it was really my brother's influence. I, I was the great, I was the great one, right? But dad, dad was taking me out and he took me to that boiler room. Now listen, I've been there before and I'm sure that in that moment, my little mind said, man, I don't know if Jesus is in there, I don't know where I want to go, you know? But listen, for me, that boiler room took on a whole new perspective. And I had the privilege several years ago, Les and I were up that way visiting friends, and I went by that little church, and the back door was open, and I crept in, and I thought I was going to get arrested or shot or something, I don't know. But I went down, and I went to that boiler room, and I just kind of had a moment. I just had a moment remembering that there was a point in time that I was saved, that at that moment when I got on my knees as a young boy, that Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He saved me. And his promises are true, and he's a faithful God like we just sang about. And at that moment, I was saved. Regardless of what happened in my life from that point, I was saved. Paul gives us this picture in Romans chapter 3, if you just kind of look at the text with me. Romans chapter 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To be justified. At that moment, I was saved. The Bible uses the term justified. It means to be made right. So in the eyes of God, when we surrender our lives and confess our sin, we are made right with God because He covers us with the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid a price for me that I could never pay, and He justified me freely. He goes on Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and He says this, He says, therefore, since we have been what? Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified. If you're sitting in this place, you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you have been justified. You have been made right. Now, for a lot of people, I know in especially American church life, we think, well, salvation is that point in time that I prayed some prayer and confessed all my past to God and it's over. I would question whether you really have an understanding of what salvation is. There's no magic prayer, there's no magic words that we say because at the point of the fact that we are justified, we are giving up our life and taking on the life of Christ. It's much to me like a wedding ceremony. As I look back and I see my precious wife and my mother-in-law, she's shaking her head because she knows the picture that's coming up here. <clears throat> Because there was a point in time that I stood at an altar. Look at those sweet young kids. Aren't they awesome? Yeah. You see, when, when I married my wife, I stood at the altar, and I didn't simply say, babe, here's my past. I said, here's my future. Hey, I, I'm, I'm not just giving you my past. I'm giving you my present life, and I'm giving you all of my future, whatever that might hold. And it's been a roller coaster ride. It's been an adventure. But, but salvation is, is much like that. We don't just simply come to God and go, God, well, you know all this bad stuff that I did, and yeah, I'm a sinner, and I confess all that. That's not salvation. Salvation is saying, God, I confess my sin, and I, I'm justified. I'm made right with you. And because I'm made right with you, I am in now a growing relationship with you from now until the time you take me home. 
And so we go back to our image, and Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says this, because he's saying, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he is also glorified. There's a future tense to this word that says, I will be saved. And so there's this picture, there was a day that I was saved, there will be a day when I pass from this life by death, by accident, or Jesus calls me home, whatever takes place, but there is a day that I will be saved for all eternity. That's called glorification. I will be glorified. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, all the stuff that we rejoice about and look forward to. Amen? Man, I look forward to that day. But in between is now. We are living in the in-between, and the term that the Bible refers to here is to be sanctified, or the sanctification of us as children of God. When I came to know Christ, I was justified. I was saved. That is secure. It is forever. God says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. There's nothing you could do to earn that salvation. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to lose that salvation. You are mine. You are secure. You are justified. And one day, Dave, you will be glorified in my presence for all eternity. But in between, I'm going to continue to do a work in you. And it's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult, but I just need you to trust me and, and walk with me and grow with me. And so this, this term of being sanctified is really kind of an interesting term. The Greek term really kind of has two different aspects to that. One is a positional sanctification. That when I came to know Christ, he gave me, Paul tells us in Romans, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing all of my future inheritance. Positionally, I am secure in Christ. In other words, I am sanctified. I am positioned right with God. When God looks at me, he says, you are right. You are, are sanctified. But there's also a progressive aspect that I am growing in my spiritual maturity and walk with Christ. Now, as a daily picture, this is daily for me. If you want to begin to do this, I'm telling you what, it's helpful. Here's a little product. You can get it just about anywhere. This one is made by Oral-B, okay? Colgate makes some, others make some. You can get the generic versions. This is a toothbrush. If you don't have one, on behalf of your neighbors and family members, I would suggest you go ahead and get one, or if you really need it, I will give you this one when we're done. Every single day of my life, this is my reminder of my position in Christ. I know that sounds crazy, doesn't it? You're going, Dave, I'm learning a lot about you this morning. But every day I get up and I grab the green toothbrush because the green one is mine. I can't even tell you what color Leslie's is. All I know is the green one is mine. Don't mess with my toothbrush because it's been sanctified. Positionally, it is set apart for me. Is there anybody in a room that's a toothbrush sharer? Yeah, right? Who wants to do that? Your toothbrush is sanctified. It's yours. It's yours. It, it's set apart for your use. When we are spiritually sanctified, when we're justified in Christ, the picture is this. You are sanctified. You are set apart for God's exclusive use, period, nothing else. But, but see, it's not enough simply to have it. There has to be a progression of actually using it. 
Uh, it's got to be put into practice. You have to begin to use what you have. You have to identify who you are, what you are, and the purpose for which you were selected by God and justified, and you have to begin to grow in that process. This is the sanctification process. So early on at the beginning of this series, I said, you know, when, when you look at someone's life and you look at your life in Jesus Christ, when you get saved, begin to look for a change in two different areas, attitude and action. And as we grow in Christ, we should see those things continually changing to be more like Christ. Why? Because I'm sanctified. I'm set apart for His exclusive use. And every day He's shaping me. Every day He's teaching me. Every day He's molding me and conforming me more to His image. So it changes my thoughts. It changes my words. It changes my actions. And so as we go through this morning, I want to ask a series of questions along the way. And these questions are for you. You hear me? They're for you. They're not for your neighbor. They're for you. And every one of you will have an answer, and everyone's answer may be a little bit different. But I think it's part of the process as we continue to evaluate and assess where we are spiritually. And so, here's a couple of quick questions for you. Why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you in the room? Why did you get up and come here? Because I think your motive will, will speak to a certain extent where you are in the growth process. Some of you may have gotten up this morning and said, man, I have to go to church. Some of you got up this morning and said, man, I get to go to church. Some of you walked on campus this morning going, let's get this done. I want to go to Chargirl, you know, wherever you're planning to go. But it's like, let's just get this done because it's a spiritual obligation to you. That's legalism. The Bible doesn't teach legalism. The Bible teaches intimate relationship with Jesus. Some of you are here this morning saying, well, you know, it's just, it makes me a better person. I, and I go and I feel better and I think God's going to be more pleased. And it just, if, if I'm a better person, that's good. That's moralism. Moralism doesn't work. It doesn't matter how good you can be because you can never be good enough. We can only be good enough when we are justified freely by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Some of you walked on campus and you said, man, I just hope that someone loves me. I hope that someone sees me. And you came with sort of an emptiness and, and, and kind of longing feeling. Others walked on campus and said, I can't wait to see who I can bless. I can't wait to meet someone on campus that I've never met before and help them grow in Christ. Right? Your motive is different. Part of that has to do with where you are in your spiritual growth process. And it's okay to be at different places. We just have to acknowledge where we are and keep growing. Keep growing. Keep moving forward. Have you trusted Jesus? Have you come to the place that you have trusted Jesus and started a personal relationship with Him? For, for you, maybe this morning, that's where this journey begins. You're sitting here saying, yeah, it's interesting. I've never come to know Christ personally. We want to help you with that this morning to know what it means to have a personal relationship with Christ. And so as we grow in Christ, as we're transformed, because Jesus changes what? Everything. Because Jesus changes everything, we're going to continue to grow in that process. And so a few weeks ago, I shared a quote from uh, A.W. Tozer, just one of my favorite old preacher's writers. And I think it's worth sharing part of that right now, because I think it just drills home this truth as we wrap up this series. He wrote this, speaking of and writing about the transformed life. He says this, he says, this is where we stand. 
Receiving Jesus Christ into your life means that you have made an attachment to the person of Christ that is revolutionary in that it reverses the life and transforms it completely. It is complete in that it leaves no part of the life. Get that? No part of the life unaffected. It exempts no area of the life of the total man. By faith and through grace, you have now formed an exclusive relationship with your Savior, Jesus Christ. All of your other relationships are now conditioned and determined by your one relationship to your Savior. To receive Jesus Christ then is to attach ourselves in faith to his holy person to live or die forever. He must be first and last and all. Totally inclusive. And that's exactly, I think, what Paul is saying as he's wrapping up this letter. And so as we dive in, when I think of Paul's last words as he is summarizing everything, if I could summarize what I think Paul is communicating to us as he closes out his letter, it would simply be this. Let your earthly practice be worthy of your heavenly position. Let your earthly practice the way you live, be worthy of your heavenly position in Christ. A couple of points just for you to jot down. The first one is simply this. The Jesus in you is the Jesus others will see. The Jesus in you is the Jesus that others will see. The more you surrender, the more they will see. The more you give over to him, the more people will see. Beginning in verse 15, chapter 3, Paul says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. Verse 17, if you don't have this highlighted, underlined, bolded, magnified in your Bible, you need to. Verse 17, and what ever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All that we say and do is associated with the name of Jesus Christ. When you are sanctified, every part of your being is now associated with the name of Jesus. By our words and our works, we should glorify his name. If we permit anything in our lives that cannot be associated with the holiness and righteousness of the name of Jesus, it's sin. I don't know how else to define it. Now, not beating anybody up because there's not a person in this room that is sinless. Anybody? Anybody in here going, eh, I'm, I'm really, really, really good. That would be a lie. That would make you a sinner. That would make you guilty with the rest of us. Okay? Even as we strive to grow into the fullness of Christ, it's a struggle. Is, is there anybody, no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, is there anybody that didn't have a spiritual struggle this week? It's tough. It's, it's tough as we grow in Christ. And so Paul is simply saying, look, everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we say is simply a representation of the name of Jesus. So here's another question for you. You ready? Is there anything, anything at all going on in your life right now? Any thought, any word, any deed? any attitude, any action that does not bring honor to the name of Jesus? I'm not talking the big public stuff. I'm talking like the, the private stuff, the real intimate stuff when it's just you and Jesus in the room. 
Is there anything? Pastor Scott just a couple of weeks ago talked about killing sin. Because that's what Paul was writing about. He's like, man, we have to recognize those things. That's why we have the daily hour-by-hour assessment. Where am I in my relationship with God? What's coming after me? What's keeping me from honoring Christ with my life? And let me go after it. Let me go after it with intensity and let me kill it because I want to honor Jesus with every aspect of my life. And so as if Paul simply, he says, hey, whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. As if that's not enough, he just sort of gives us a picture of some specific areas that we need to experience as transformation and let people see Jesus in us. The first one he talks about is in Christian fellowship. In Christian fellowship. In verse 15, he talks about that we're called in one body, that we're teaching one another, that we're admonishing one another. Verse 16, he uses the phrase that, hey, we're, we're part of one another. And I love the language that Paul uses here because it's, it's a language of family. It's the idea that, hey, we're in this together. That you're not alone. Whatever's going on in your life as you grow in relationship with Jesus, you're not alone. We're in this together. We're part of one another. We're going to teach one another. We're going to admonish one another. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to love one another in Christian fellowship. Now, we bear the name of Christ. That's what he's talking about. Now, just real quick, the word Christian is actually only, it only shows up three times in the entire New Testament. Uh, the first in the book of Acts, chapter 11, when the, when the church there, the followers of Jesus, were first called Christian. Then it shows up again in Acts 26, and then it shows up in 1 Peter, uh, chapter 4. But you need to understand this, that the, that the name Christian, the term, was originally a term of contempt. But, but over the years, it gradually became a name of honor because they were identified as Christ followers. When they were first identified with Christians, it was kind of a term of contempt because in other words, hey, these people's lives are changing and they're looking a lot like that Jesus guy that we crucified. Wow, what a badge of honor, right? It was meant for contempt, but it became this badge of honor. Why? Because we belong to one another. So when you bear the name Christian, you represent Christ. When you bear the name Christian, you represent the body of Christ because we are in this together. So do you understand that, that your actions, your words, your deeds affect the witness of other Christians? Start talking to somebody about being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, and, and someone kicks back, yeah, I know some other Christians. I want nothing to do with that. Why? Because we're in it together, and your reactions, your words, your deeds, everything about what you do affects someone else's witness. A couple of quick questions. Do you enjoy your relationship with Jesus? I mean, enjoy. Do you truly enjoy your relationship with Christ? Because when you're identified with Him, just like that marriage relationship, you love spending time together. Is it a burden for you to spend time with Jesus? Do you grab the Word of God and, and go, oh man, I guess I got to read something? Or, or do you enjoy diving into God's Word saying, God, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to do in my life? 
How do you want to continue to conform me to your image? God, what do you want to teach me that I can share with someone else and encourage another believer? God, what have you taught me already that I can invest in the life of a younger believer? God, how do you want to use me? Do you just enjoy your time? Another question, is there evidence in your life right now that you are growing towards spiritual maturity? Can you honestly say, man, my life is different today than it was a week ago or a month ago or a year ago because I'm growing towards spiritual maturity in Christ? Are you connected to the body? We use the word connected around here a lot. We want to connect people to Jesus for life change. We want you to get connected with other believers in a small group. And, and, and the word connected is not really full enough. So when I'm having conversations with some of you, I will say to get connected is really to commit to relationship. You see, coming to church is not getting connected to Jesus. You get connected to Jesus by committing to a relationship with him. To have your name on, a, on the list of a, a small group is not connected. Showing up is connected. It's committing to relationship. It's showing up. We're going to be there. I'm going to invest in the lives of others. I'm going to grow in relationship with them. I'm going to learn about some of their junk, and they're going to learn about some of my junk, and we're going to pray together. We're going to walk this journey together. We're going to continue to grow towards spiritual maturity in Christ together. So Paul says, hey, they're going to see Jesus in Christian fellowship. They're going to see it in your home. Now, again, this is a summary. This is nowhere near an exhaustive teaching. We could do a whole series on these next four verses, but this is not exhaustive of what the Bible teaches. But Paul is saying, look, basically, the Jesus in you is the Jesus that others are going to see in your home. So he picks up in verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There's, there's a huge doctrine we could unpack here. This is not anti-woman. This is, is pro-God, pro-marriage, pro-relationship. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. And all the parents said, amen. yeah, for this pleases the Lord. But now all the kids say amen because verse 21 says, Fathers, do not embitter your children. Amen, kids? Yeah. Or they will become discouraged. Parents, quick rule. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. It's true as a parent. It's true in our relationship with God. If we simply look at, at God as, oh man, look at all these rules. Look at all this stuff I have to do. That's legalism. There's no relationship there. What happens? I rebel against God and I walk away. On the other hand, when I understand the loving relationship that God intended from the truth of his word, I'm growing in relationship with him. All of a sudden his rules make more sense. That's extra credit. The first place our Christian faith should go to work, Paul is saying, is in the home. We live out the transformed life by loving our family, by caring for them as Christ loves us. This goes right along with what Paul tells us in, in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Do your best to outlove one another in your home. Outserve one another in your home. Grow to love Jesus more than you love each other. But then he says, hey, what about your work? What about your workplace? And again, this is a summary. And, and here Paul is, he's using some language that we can get real hung up on in our culture. 
because he's talking about slaves and masters. He's talking about authority, and every one of us in this room are under some form of authority, multiple forms of authority. Some of us have authority over others. So he's talking about managers and workers and authority in general. And he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, there it is again, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism masters. Provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are an employee or you are a boss or you are a manager or you have any form of work at all, do you realize that you're actually just a minister of the gospel by how you work and serve? Your work is a ministry. Be the best. Not, not since you get that employee of the month parking place. Do your best because that's a testimony of the Jesus that's in you. That's what people are going to see. We could break that down, but we're just going to continue. He says the Jesus in you is the Jesus that others will see then in your Christian witness. And he picks up in verse 2 of chapter 4, devote yourselves in prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Those are non-believers, not yet Christ followers, I like to call them. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Man, what a beautiful picture of our Christian witness, that as you live your life and everything you do, you are a witness to the gospel, the mystery of Christ. From, chapter, from verse 2 into 3, he's talking about your prayer life. Uh, how, how much time do you spend in prayer about the ministry that God has given you? you know, we want to run to, to God with our list of things, like a, like a vending machine. Hey, if I pray these prayers, deposit a few prayers, pull some knobs, God's going to give me what I want. You notice that's nowhere in here? Paul is saying, be watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves in prayer. Pray that God may open a door for our message. How often do you just spend time with God in the morning saying, God, please, this morning, would you give me an opportunity to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to somebody? Would you begin to prepare their heart right now so that later today at the gas pump or at the grocery store or in my office, wherever it may be, God, that I'm going to have an opportunity to proclaim your goodness and your mercy? So two to three, he's talking about prayer. Three into verse four, he's talking about just proclaiming the gospel. Five and six, then he's talking about being an effective witness. That I would be effective, that my life would be such a representation, that my life would so reflect the Jesus in me that my witness would be effective. Because see, if our life doesn't reflect the transformation of God, how effective is our witness? Oh, really? You're talking to me about forgiveness? You never forgave me for doing this. Oh, you're talking about hope? How come you live with no hope? Oh, peace? God promises peace? How come you live with no peace? Right? Our lives have to be evidence and a reflection of Christ. So he, Paul is saying our lives, everything, in word, in deed, he says here, in to everyone. 
You realize that everyone that you come in contact with is a ministry opportunity that God uniquely placed you there? Oh man, I can't believe I'm sick. Why did God place you in the doctor's office? Because somebody there needs to know about the love of Jesus. Oh man, I can't believe I got to schedule and go to the DMV. Anybody else hate that? Anybody else pray on the way saying, God, just give me a gospel opportunity. While I'm standing out in that line, I'm going to be standing around people for a while. I'm going to be sitting next to people for a while. How can I convey the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus to those in the DMV line? Take a box of donuts with you when you go. Take some bottles of water. Go, hey, man, how can I minister to you? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Every, he's saying everyone that we come in contact with in your home, at work, everywhere, at all times, in every situation, every moment in life, we should live wise and with grace because every single situation and human encounter that we have, Paul says, we proclaim the mystery of Christ to everyone. Let's not look at any encounter that we have with someone the same. Let's realize that God has uniquely placed us there to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So here's a question. When was the last time you personally shared your faith in Jesus with another person? For the last several years, I've been just tracking various surveys and polls, and the trends continue. The majority of born-again believers, the high majority, up into the 80s to the 90s, will never share their faith in Jesus Christ with another person. Can I just tell you, that goes completely against the Word of God. How comfortable are you to do that? See, when was the last time you did it, but how comfortable are you with that? As family, maybe you just need to pull someone in and say, man, would you, would you help me? Would you help me know how to articulate the gospel? How to tell somebody else about my relationship with God? The second point is simply this. Jesus in you is an example for others. Paul closes out his letter here by listing a bunch of names. And we're not going to take time to read all that. But remember this. Before Paul was this super Christian, Paul was the persecutor of Christians. Do you remember that? Matter of fact, the Word of God tells us that it was Paul, at that name, at that time his name was Saul, who stood and held the cloaks, the clothes, the outer garments of those that stoned Stephen, who was the first martyr for the Christian faith. It was, it was Paul who stood there and held those cloaks while they stoned Stephen to death. Then Paul had this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus changes everything. One of the things that I believe changed in Paul is he became a really friendly guy. That sounds weird, right? I think Paul became very friendly, very outgoing, and, and here's why I say that. Because if my count is correct, Paul, in his letter, there are more than 100 different names, uh, either directly named or associated with, that Paul lists throughout the book of Acts and each of his epistles. Matter of fact, if you go to Romans chapter 16 alone, he lists 26 names of people who are associated with him in ministry. 
I think Paul was a friendly guy who loved people who began to experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, welcomed people into his life, and he began to convey God's love and grace. That's exactly what he's telling us to do. Do it at work. Do it in your home. Do it in your community. Everywhere, all the time, every person. So here as he closes this letter, he lists 11 Christians that are associated with Paul and his ministry. And, and at some point today, would you just grab your Bible and read Colossians chapter 4? Because we're not going to take time to do it right now. But just read Colossians 4 and, and highlight or underline any word that is a characteristic. It's a word of action. It's a word of care. Or it's a term of endearment or emotion that Paul uses when he talks about these followers. Because you're going to see words like he's beloved, he's a beloved brother, he's a faithful minister, he's a fellow servant, he's an encourager, he's faithful and beloved, he greets you, he welcomes you, he's a fellow worker, he's a comfort to me, he's a servant, he's struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you would stand mature, he's a witness, he's worked hard, he's beloved, he greets you. And Paul is listing these 11 people as, as sort of a, a motivational testimony. And I want you to understand, folks, that as you and I live the Christian life, somebody is watching us. Somebody is watching you in everything that you do to either honor Christ and motivate them to come to know Christ or for other believers to begin to walk in fellowship with Christ. All of these names are significant, but I just want to share a couple quick things about a, a couple of these guys. The first one is, is the guy named Epaphras. You'll find it in verse 12. And this is what he says about Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. I don't know anybody in my life named Epaphras. If your name's Epaphras, would you please come see me afterwards? Or would you email or text? I would love to meet you. Now, I knew a guy who was Epaphras to me. 30 years ago, Les and I were serving a church, doing student ministry, and there was a guy named Mike. Mike was a mailman. Mike was my Epaphras. After I got to know him, and he was, man, he just, he loved people. He loved Jesus. He taught a junior high boy Sunday school class along with me in my ministry for a number of years. And when Les and I moved from that church, for the last 30 years, I would get notes from Mike. Brother, I don't know what's going on in your life. The Holy Spirit just laid you on my heart. I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. Be faithful. Keep walking. Keep fighting. Keep living out the gospel. And I would get these, just every, every now and then, just random, I would get it. Every place that we went, every place that we served, I would get this little folded note from Mike. And it would have a date and it would have a timestamp, typically somewhere around 4 a.m. Because he was my Epaphras. He was the one saying, man, I'm praying for you. I am praying that, that, not just praying, he says, I'm struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature, fully assured in all of the will of God. Do you have an Epaphras in your life? Are you an Epaphras? 
Who is it that you are wrestling for? Our dear friend Mike passed away last year. And I saw a picture one of his daughters shared of, his, of just his little prayer area. And for all these years, I thought, man, I'm pretty, pretty awesome because Mike's sending me these notes. And when I saw this prayer area, there were hundreds of pictures at his desk. And he would just pray. He would wrestle in prayer. The people would stand mature, continue to pursue the gospel. Guys, you need an Epaphras, but you also need to learn to be an Epaphras for someone else. But I want to talk about really quick Demas. Here in verse 14, uh, as Paul is writing, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. That's all he says about Demas. Demas is mentioned three times in the New Testament, one here. The first time is in Philippians chapter 24, or Philippians verse 24. It says, Demas, my fellow laborer. And, and in that context, he's linked with three really solid guys, Mark, Aristarchus, and Luke. But then here, it just says Demas. No special commendation, no special identification, just Demas. But we learn something else about Demas. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. That's all we know. Demas was more in love with the things of the world than he was with Jesus in his mission. And he deserted me. Where are you going to be in a year? Five years? Ten years? Are you going to stay fully devoted? Or are you going to fall away because you love the things of the world? Is there anything in your life right now in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, John lists it so well in 1 John, is there anything in your life that you love more than Jesus? But by contrast, one last character. This guy named Archippus. Again, I know nobody named Archippus. But verse 17, he says, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Can I, can I just make that our challenge tonight or this morning as we wrap up this series? Simply to say, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. See, we can be a Demas and we can fall away because we love the things of the world or we can walk with one another and fellowship and say, see to it that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. Walk faithfully with him. Are you experiencing life change? Are you ready to fulfill the ministry to which God has called you? I want to close with just a very simple clip. Many of you I know have been watching with me uh, a series called The Chosen. Um, Season one, we are introduced to some characters. The first is, is Mary Magdalene, who was demon-possessed, and um, she had an encounter with Nicodemus. Uh, I believe it's a very biblical series. It's very solid. There's some artistic license taken in how some of the characters interweave, but I love it. Nicodemus ministered to Mary trying to cast out these demons, trying to bring healing to her life. And he basically said, it, it can't be done. It, it can only be God. Mary has an encounter, and she doesn't know who he is, but it's Jesus. Nicodemus has to seek her out because he heard that she had been healed, and we have this encounter. 
He performs miracles and seeks no credit. What does he look like? Is he a member of Sanhedrin? Would you at least know him if you saw him again? I don't know why I am sharing this with you. I, I don't understand it myself. But here is what I can tell you. I was one way. And now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. I can't tell you. Here's what I can tell you. I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. Is your life different because you've encountered him? His name is Jesus, and he changes everything. Let's pray together. As we bow our heads and close this time, whether you're online watching, whether you're in the room, can I invite you to know this Jesus personally, to experience the transformation that he so desires for you, to come to a personal relationship with him, not, not legalism, not trying to follow all the laws, not simply trying to be a better person, but to come to know this Jesus who changes everything. We come to know him by grace through faith. We simply confess our sins. We proclaim as our Lord and our Savior. We surrender our life to him. Right now online, I want to invite you to do that. There's a number on the screen. If you could text that, we'd love to have a conversation with you and help you understand what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. If you're in the room, I want to invite you to a personal conversation. I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about what it means to know Jesus personally. Maybe you're not ready for a conversation, but we're going to have a number up here in the room as well. You can simply text that number. We'd love to talk with you. But I want you to know Jesus changes everything. Do you know him? Have you come to trust him? And if you have, what's your next step? How is he growing you? Where do you go from here? God, in this place, thank you for the hope that we have through Jesus. God, you change everything when we surrender to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.